0: down there and everything for the kids so they'll have a well it's fresh paint but it's a couple of weeks old so it doesn't smell anymore but you can turn over in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19 Matthew chapter 19 and uh, it seems that in general a lot of times today in, in churches you hear that it's been made relatively simple, the process of coming to the Lord. Uh, You walk an aisle, you raise your hand when no one's looking. Maybe you sign a card. Um, And when you do those things, apparently you're welcomed in to the kingdom. Many people today would say, well, that's how easy it should be. It should be easy for people to come to Christ. Well, it is and it isn't. I think we need to look a little further at this because I'm afraid that a lot of churches in a zeal to attract new people and new visitors and everything else, it may be a little too easy to think that they're in. Um, And in doing so, they've really abandoned some basic principles of discipleship that our Lord taught and established, and one of them we see right here in Matthew chapter 19, uh, verses 16 to 30. When Jesus walked on earth, you remember, if we've been perusing our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen that he expected those who follow him to take it seriously. It's not a joke. He made it clear that there were some requirements involved for those who were to follow Christ. Uh, He was not interested in attracting new members to his little club. (laughs) That's not what Jesus was about. He was looking for those who were sold out, radically committed to the cause of discipleship. And there are many occasions in the Gospels where Jesus actually would challenge his followers. And he would challenge them to understand that this is a serious calling that he places on one's life. It's not something that's half-hearted. It's not a weak-kneed commitment And that challenge is extended to us, and as we know, there is a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to following Christ. Those who wish to be holy must be willing to pay that cost. There's no greater example of this than the story before us this morning of that of the rich young ruler. And so I want to read the text for us here this morning, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not "...bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself." Well, the young man said to him, "...all these I have kept. What do I still lack?" And Jesus said to him, "...if you would to be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me." When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and we followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Here we see Jesus as he speaks to this young ruler. And he was just that. This morning I want to talk to you how good about how good is good enough. Somehow we have it in our mind that if we just clean ourselves up enough, God's going to like us more. And in a way, that's what this rich, young ruler had in his head. And there's five key questions that we're going to ask, see, asked and answered this morning. The ruler asked these questions and Jesus asked them. But there's five key questions that we're going to weave our way through this text. But first of all, it just says there, And behold, a man came to him, saying, in verse 16. And this kind of is a transition from what went on before. And we've been studying this chapter for some weeks now. But here this man came up to Christ himself and said to him, Pose this question. He was a ruler, probably a young man, which is kind of unusual to be a ruler in the local synagogue. He was also rich, so that's probably why he was a ruler, because in their culture they thought the more money you had, the more spiritual you were, because they designated riches as the blessing of God. And so if you were very rich, you were looked upon as very spiritual, very religious. And so Jesus has to speak to him concerning his riches in verses 19 to 26, and he addresses this ruler here, and we notice that this guy was seeking. a man came up to him. He was seeking I don't know if you've ever had this opportunity when someone comes to you as a Christian and says, "How do I get saved?" "How do I come to know the Lord? What's in it? How do, how do I do this? And I'm not sure. If you're a Christian and somebody asks you that question, boy, it seems like they meandered around all the obstacles that usually people have. You know, well, how do you know there's a God? Well, what about evolution and how can we trust the Bible and all? And they go right to the point, how can I be saved? It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Well, this man was a young man. He was obviously religious and he wanted to know what to do to have eternal life. Eternal life speaks of salvation, life with God in the hereafter. He calls Jesus teacher. You see that there? A lot of people think Jesus was a good teacher. A lot of people think that he was a good man. He was a good moral man. But they stop when you ask him, well, do you want this good moral teacher to be Lord of your life? Well, I don't know about that. But here this this young man speaks to Jesus. He's seeking. He's seeking out spiritual insight, spiritual wisdom, and he goes to Christ because that's what Christ's reputation was. His reputation was one of having the answers for spiritual needs. Sometimes I wonder, do people seek us out when they have questions concerning their spirituality? Do they look at us as someone who has answers for their spiritual needs? Are we living our faith out in such a way that people see something different in us so when they're at that point in time where, boy, they're at the crossroads of a decision with the Lord, you know what, I'm going to call this person or I'm going to call that person. I hope that's true. But the first question he asks is, what good thing shall I do? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's a pretty honest question. It's a pretty open question. He wants to know. Unfortunately, the premise is all wrong for this young ruler. See, he's looking at himself as somebody who's pretty much done everything there is to do. We're going to find that out in a couple minutes, as far as goodness goes. But he knows he still doesn't possess eternal life. And so he said, there must be something else I have to do in order to obtain it. And he goes to Christ, who is the source of life, the creator, and he asks him this very pointed question. In verse 17, Jesus answers this question, kind of. He kind of asks him another question. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you, would have, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. See, there's a lot of people today in our world that would call Jesus a good moral teacher. That's not what he's in the game for. He doesn't want to be just a good moral teacher. That's not what Christ is all about. Christ wants to be more than that. He is more than that. And he wants us to acknowledge him as such. And so he asked the man, the first premise is, why do you think I'm good? You read the other gospel accounts, and it's similar. Why do you think I am good? Obviously, Christ's reputation went before him. He saw the miracles that he'd done. He probably heard some of his teaching. His young ruler, young, rich young ruler, was a religious man, no doubt. So he had probably even heard Christ speak before. But Christ is really kind of bringing him back to earth and saying, well, I guess we have to start with the definition of good. That's what he's doing. Because the guy asked, what good deed must I do? And you, being a good teacher, must be able to tell me what good deed, what's the last thing I have to do just to kind of get through the gates of heaven? It must be something. And he answers him, and he says, you know what? If you want to enter life, eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, you have to understand, in their culture, the, the Jewish system... They they had taken the law of God and they turned it into 600 and some odd different rules and regulations. It wasn't just, you know, the top 10 commandments that they were to keep. They had all sorts of nuances of those commandments and certain rules and regulations and and all sorts of stuff. And they they made the law of God really a, a burden on the people. Rather than just keep the law... They took it and they they warped it. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day took the law of God and they turned it into something that they thought they could accomplish. So their mindset was very much a doing good deeds oriented kind of a society. And so when Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Just keep the commandments. It's kind of clear. And that's why the man comes back and he says, well, which one? Second question. I mean, our religious leaders tell us there's 600 and some odd different commandments. You want me to keep all of them? He wants to know. He wants to clearly understand how he can have everlasting, eternal life. Look over at Galatians with me, chapter 3, verse 24. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. It says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by what? Faith. But look at what it says. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, having put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Look also over at James Chapter one. James chapter one verse twenty-two. It says in James one twenty two. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what it was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This young man had a wrong view of how to get eternal life. First he said, what good thing must I do? And then he says, well, what commandments do you want me to keep? Do you understand that the law was given for us not to keep the law? God gave us the commandments, gave them to Moses, not to show us, okay, here's the ten steps to heaven. That's not what God gave us the law for. He gave us the law to show us our inability to keep the law. He gave us the law so that we would come to the end of ourself and we look at th- the law of God, and we go, who could do this? And the answer is nobody. (laughs) That's why you need grace. That's why you need faith. That's why you need a Savior who died in your place. So which commandments? Well, the answer really could have been keep all of them. But Jesus wasn't mean. He was polite. He was courteous. He had... Compassion on this man. I think it's Mark that tells us that he loved this man. Even though he wasn't one of his followers. He loved him. And so Jesus answers the question in verse 18. Which ones? I'll tell you which ones. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You notice all these have to do with another human being. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They're all on the horizontal plane. Some of the commandments deal with the vertical plane. Shouldn't take the name of the Lord in vain. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. All those. No, he, he pointed this young ruler to the horizontal. How are you treating your fellow man? Being a religious man, he probably lived a somewhat religious life and helped those around him. And it says in verse 20 the young man said to him, All these I have kept. One translation says, Since my birth. What do I still lack? In other words, look, I've tried this. I've done all these things. I treat everybody great. But I still understand that I don't have eternal life. What do I still lack? That's what he wants to know. It's odd sometimes in life when you are in a situation where you're lacking something. I was putting together some furniture downstairs yesterday and got one almost all together and I just kind of start putting the stuff together you know and then you kind of you get stuck then you look at the directions well I realized the little box in the directions things you need to complete this task well I had most of my tools I wasn't worried but the one thing I was lacking missing I was lacking glue and it called for glue So I frantically ran around downstairs and found some wood glue. All right, we're okay. Continued on. Rather than look at the box and say, what else do I need? Maybe I should just stop here now. Got almost done, and all I needed a square, a big metal square to make sure the thing was square before I put the backing on it. Didn't have that. Actually, I had to go home to get that. You know, whether it's a tool... In your trade, or whether it's it's wisdom, or whether it's finances, or whether it's relationships, we're all lacking at some point in our life. We all come up lacking something. And this guy here, he had everything. He he was a religious leader. He had the respect of the community, obviously because he treated everybody nice, because he said he's done all these things. Treats his mom and dad, honors them, treats his neighbor as himself, all these things. He's rich. He basically had everything going for him. But he understood that there was still something missing. There's still something missing. I remember growing up in a religious home and going to mass every week and doing the altar boy and doing the whole thing, catechism, Saturday mornings. and You know, 18 years of my life. came a point in my, my life where I, I thought, okay, I'm pretty religious, but there's something still missing here, and I don't know what it is. Just don't know what it is. Jumping through all the hoops, doing everything they ask you to do, confirmation, baptism, the whole thing. One point, the priesthood even popped into my brain. I thought, you know, there's something missing here. not a good place to be in life when you're you're lacking something and you can't put your finger on it. It's one thing to be able to lack something and know what it is and go get it, but this poor individual had everything at his disposal, and yet he was still lacking something. And Jesus said to him in verse 21, if you're perfect, if you want to be complete, if you want to be totally perfect, since you do all this other stuff, great, you said you kept all these things. There's something standing in your way. Go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Was that an honest answer from Christ? I think it was. See, it doesn't matter what it is in our life, but when things stand in the way between us and Christ when there's something blocking our relationship with the Lord, that's something that He wants to do away with. doesn't matter what it is. It could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. doesn't matter. It could be family, friends, whatever it might be. Your will, His will, that constant battle that goes on. But Jesus tells him very clearly here. He says, you know what? If you want to be complete, if you want that eternal life, you need to go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, does that mean that everybody who is going to be saved has to sell everything they have and give it to the poor? Is that what Jesus is saying here? No, it's clearly not what he's saying. He's meeting this guy right at his point of need. He's dialing in on what that man needs. Well, look at his response. All of a sudden, this seeking ruler, this seeking young man, this religious man that thought, boy, it's great to to go after truth, and I want the truth. Just tell me the truth, Jesus. I want to be more religious. I want to do everything that I can to have eternal life. That seeking attitude quickly changed into a sorrowful attitude and it says in verse 22 when the young man heard this he went away sorrowful why because he had great possessions it's exactly what jesus said there's something standing in the way between you and me you rich young ruler i know what it is and i'm going to kind of whittle it down here for you to see very clearly and then you're going to have to make a decision He asked, what do I lack? Well, Jesus clearly answered it. You see here the Savior's conclusion in verse 21. If you want to be perfect, go and sell all you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. Now... Think of the disciples who are part of Jesus' group. They're following him. They left everything they had to follow, jobs and family and everything. They've been following him for some time now. And they're probably thinking, wow, this guy's a religious leader. He's rich. Think of how he could help our ministry, Jesus. Let's, Let's include this man. Let's reach out to this guy. We didn't find him. He found us. Can you imagine the reaction when Jesus says those words and the disciples standing by there on the sidelines watch the young man put his head down and walk away down the dusty trail sorrowful, thinking, wow, what happened? What was that conversation about? Well, then we see not only does Jesus have to speak to this rich young ruler, but he has to speak to his disciples as very often is the case, to clarify some things. And the disciples, and Jesus said to his disciples in verse 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with difficulty. Why is that? Why is that, Jesus? Why? What do you mean? In their mind, they're thinking riches means blessing of God. So the more money you had, the more riches you had, then you were being blessed of God more than anyone else. Surely you would have eternal life. But Jesus said, no, that's not true. Riches can be the blessing of God, but it can also be a curse. For many people, it's a curse. There are a lot of people in the world, beloved, that have money coming out their ears. And you know what? At the end of the day, when they lay their head on their $10,000 pillow in their multi million dollar mansion, they're coming up short. They're saying, man, what am I still lacking? There's still something wrong here. I got all this stuff. I've been very successful, I've been blessed. But there's still something missing. They're coming to the same conclusion this man came to. What do I lack? And Jesus points it out. And he says, you know what? It's going to be difficult for somebody like that to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because they have too much holding them down here. See, if you're a poor person, if you don't have anything here, (laughs) what are you praying for? Praying for the Lord to come back, right? You're praying you don't have to meet that rent check next month. Come on, God, come on. Come on back. That's what you're praying for. You're eager to be in the Lord's presence where all your needs are going to be met. But you know what? If you're a fat cat sitting on a couple billion dollars and you got all your needs being met down here and you snap your fingers and people run to your every little whim and need, you don't think that's going to be a little hard, a little difficult to leave? I remember when... One of the congressmen was going through his escapade a couple months ago and I was watching a talk show and they said, you know, a normal person caught in that situation, kind of did some sordid things on the internet or whatever it was, the normal person would run and hide in shame, but this man can't seem to be in front of the cameras enough. He won't resign. He kept on having interview after interview, denying things, and then admitting things. But, you know, he just kept on going on. And I heard one talk show host say, you know, that just proves the addictive nature. And I thought he was going to say of, of uh, you know, sexual pornography or whatever. But he said that just proves the addictive nature of Washington politics. Here's a man who should be hiding under a rock. <laughs> but he's fighting and clawing because he doesn't want to give up what he has in Washington see there's a lot of things that hold us here on this earth and it can be not all bad things riches are not bad things Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't be rich if God blesses you with wealth praise God just remember there's nothing wrong with having wealth the wrong is when the wealth has you that's the key and so Jesus has to clearly point out to his disciples because they're just sitting there with their eyes and their jaw dropped open saying, why did you turn this guy away? What are you doing? And he says, you know what? With difficulty, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And he gives them an allegory in verse 24. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You can read different commentaries on this, and they say, well, that's referring to the gate, one of the gates and the wall, and it meant a smaller wall. It's it's irregardless of what your interpretation of that verse is, because I think the disciples got it right in their response, because they they responded with such astonishment at what Jesus just said. They said, "Who then can be saved? Who? Are you saying it's impossible for anybody to be saved, Jesus? It sure looks that way. Talking about a camel going through the eye of a needle. But look at what Jesus says to him in verse them in verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and he said, "With man, this is what? Impossible." Hear that. With man, this is impossible. What's impossible? Getting into heaven. Being rich, trusting in something other than Christ and getting into heaven. That's what he's saying. You put your trust in anything other than that, you will not enter eternal life. He says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, as hard as it is for a a wealthy man to leave his wealth behind and go to glory and live in submission to Christ, the remainder of his time here on earth, that would be hard. When you're used to an opulent lifestyle and you're used to doing your own thing. you You know what it comes down to? It comes down really... To an issue of control. This guy was rich, he was religious, he helped people, had a good reputation. But when it came right down to it, Christ said, If you want to follow me, you have to do it my way. (laughs) You can't just make up your own way. I'm God, you're not. Here's what you have to do. Because I know what has a grip on your life. Some of us, it could be finances, some of us, it could be relationships, it could be job. Whatever. When that has a hold on you and God tells you, you know what, you need to give that up. Right there, that's your point of decision. Are you going to yield to God and, and, and Christ and trust Him? Or are you going to continue to hold on and white-knuckle it? Jesus clearly said here that it's impossible For man to save himself. You can do all the good works. You want to. It doesn't mean squat. It may mean a lot to your fellow man. Who reap the reward of your good works. But you know what? Before a holy God. The Bible says our our works are like filthy rags. They don't mean anything to him. For those who are trying to earn their way. To heaven. And beloved Every religion, world religion in the world, comes down to just that. They all got their little list, and they'll say, if you want to belong to our club, if you want to belong to our religion, here's what you have to do. And when you do these things, our God will like you more. See, that's the difference between the world religions and Christianity. It's a vast difference. You go to Christ, you ask him, what do I have to do? He says, not only do you not have to do anything, there's nothing you can do. Because with man, it's impossible. You have to come to a point in your life where you're at your bottom and you cry out to God and you say, God, I know I can't save myself. I need to look to you. You're the Savior. You've promised me in your word, if I come to you, be merciful to me. Lord, a sinner, I need you to save me, because I can't do it on my own. I'm tired of running this rat race. I'm tired of like a hamster on the wheel, you know. You just run, 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 thinking that somehow it's going to get better. Somehow, eventually, it's going to slow down. It only slows down when you die, beloved. And then you realize, wow, okay, I live my life, all of this, Doing all this stuff. But you know what? I really didn't have my spiritual priorities in order. And now comes the judgment. One evangelist, when speaking of a man's soul and how much we are to value it. Do we value our own soul? Because one day this soul will leave this body and be cast into eternity, either in heaven or in hell. Very clear. Those who don't value the soul say, I don't care, I'm just going to live my life here. Move on. When I die, I die. Because they think it ends in the grave. It doesn't end in the grave, beloved. And this evangelist said, so many people You know, if you ask them, hey, I'll give you a million dollars for your right eye. They wouldn't give it to you. How about two million? No. Three million? Five million? Come on, just give me your eye. I need it. Why? Why wouldn't you do that? You wouldn't give somebody your eye because you value your sight. I'll give you ten million for both your eyes. Come on. Think all the money you'll have. Of course, you'll be blind the rest of your life, but... You're not going to make that kind of swap. You're just not going to do it. Any sane, normal person wouldn't do it. And yet, there's so many people out there that will swap their soul for something that stands between them and Christ. It could be riches. It could be whatever. So he says there, With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, there's, there's hope. There's hope for somebody in this condition. But you know what? They have to turn to God. And they can only turn to God. They can't turn to themselves. They can't try to figure out. They can't try to work themselves out of it. I heard somebody say the other day of one of our politicians. They said, you know, they keep on asking the question. How are we going to get out of this hole? How are we going to get out of this hole? And somebody said, they need to tell them to stop digging. (laughs) Just stop digging. (laughs) You know, because the government's trying to solve all these problems they can't solve. And so many times I thought of spiritual needs in people's lives. They dig and they dig and they try to do all these things that think somehow God's going to pat them on the back one day and give them a free pass. It's not going to happen. We serve a just God. And believe me, if Christ didn't have to go to the cross, that was God's only son. If he didn't have to be born into a human body and suffer here on earth and die that cruel death on a cross, if there was another way, believe me, God would have figured it out. But there wasn't. And so when you come to the end of the road, either you put your faith in Christ or you don't. That's what Depends, determines where you go, where you spend eternity. Well, then he has to speak to the disciples concerning rewards. He says there, and Peter addresses Christ. They're astonished at his reply. And in verse 27, then Peter said in reply, well, look at us, Lord, we've left everything and we followed you. You know, just like Peter would do. And he wants to know, what then will we have? Look at what we've done. And Jesus answers his sincere question with a sincere answer. He says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, speaking of the twelve disciples there, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What he's telling Peter is, you know what? I know you've left everything. You've left your career. You've left everything. Family, to follow me. I understand that. And I don't want you to think that that faithfulness, that humility, that willingness to sacrifice is not going to be rewarded because it is. And here's what's going to be your reward. You're going to actually be judging the 12 tribes of Israel one day. I mean, think. He's telling this to guys that were just asking him, hey, Jesus, who's going to be greatest? You know? And it comes up again. But they had this little thing going on. And so Jesus kind of uses that to his advantage to answer this question. And in verse 29, he says, Everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold. And will inherit eternal life. You know what that shows me? Is that God is just. God is fair. God is right. He doesn't tell you, you know what, sacrifice everything you have down here and follow me, and then I'm going to make you pay for it when you get to heaven. That's not the case. There's a reward in heaven for those who faithfully follow Christ, even as we stumble and bumble our way along, you know, the the way of faith. He doesn't say, oh, you know what, if you're going to follow me, you have to be perfect. He doesn't say, once you start following me, if you step out of line just once, that's it. It's over. You're going to hell. That's not what he says. He says, my, fa- my grace is sufficient for you. He wants them to know that one day they're going to receive a reward for their faithfulness. And they're going to have eternal life. He assures them of that. And at the last verse there... And this goes into next week's message, but he says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. How many times have you said that while you're waiting in a long line at the DMV or out to lunch or whatever? That verse pops in your your mind. Well, here he's talking in a little different way. So, Jesus confronts this rich young man with the truth and the rich young man won't hear it goes away sorrowful because he's unwilling to sacrifice his riches for the kingdom of God and then he has to address his disciples first concerning wealthy people getting into heaven in this context but it could be anything anything that stands in the way of you and Jesus has to be done away with And then he talks to them about rewards. But I want to leave you with this. What does it take for you to be a disciple of Christ? I think this is very practical. What does it take for you to be a disciple of Christ? I think, first of all, you have to confront the truth about who Jesus Christ is. Stop hiding behind the curtain and come out and honestly assess who Christ is. Because if you can't come to terms with who Jesus Christ is, why would you follow him? That doesn't make any sense. See, Jesus doesn't say, here, put a blindfold on and follow me. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He's never said that to anybody. He did incredible works. He did miraculous things beyond even what he had to do. And he had hordes of people following him. Some of them confronted the truth about Jesus Christ, and some of them didn't. And that's what he does here with this rich young ruler. That's why he says, who, who are you calling good? He doesn't just sit there and say, oh, yeah, tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm good. He's not saying he's not good, by the way. He's God. Of course he's good. But he's saying, you know what, rich young ruler, I'm not interested in lip service. Don't you dare call me good unless you know And you're ready to call me God. Because that's who I am. There's a tendency among non-believers, non-Christians, to dismiss Jesus as simply a good moral teacher. Nothing more. Jesus was a good man. Even a great moralist, they say. But I don't believe that he is God. Or the only way to God. I don't believe that. They say that real quickly. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, Mere Christianity, addressed that. And here's what he wrote. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic. Or else he would be the devil of hell. See, you must make a choice, he goes on. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or even something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit on him. You can kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us. In order to be a disciple of Christ, you must be willing to confront the truth about Jesus Christ. It means admitting that he is who he said he is, Lord. Even though Christians are ready to acknowledge this with their lips, many times our lives indicate something different or something less. We try to limit the level of involvement Christ has in our lives. We may be willing to embrace him as Savior, but we're not ready to accept him as Lord. You've heard that said. I don't think that's an option that's open for us. You can't experience Christ as Savior unless you're willing to acknowledge him as Lord. It goes together. Many people have said Jesus must be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. What's it mean to accept Jesus as Lord? It means that you're willing to submit to His cause, not yours. It means that you're willing to commit yourselves to His obedience, to obeying what He says. That's why He points him to the law. He says, hey, keep these commandments. I mean, why is it that you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I do, he said in Luke 6, 46. If you love me, he says, you'll keep my commandments. I mean, can you imagine a man proposing to a woman for marriage, saying this, honey, I love you, I want to marry you, I'll provide, I'll take care of you, I'll be a good father to our children. All I want to ask of you, my dearest wife-to-be, is that you give me one day a year for all the other women? Just one day? I'm just asking one day? I don't think there's a woman on the face of the earth who says, hey, that sounds like a pretty good deal. You'd be a fool to accept that. See, it's just as wrong for us to act as though Jesus would accept an offer or part-time discipleship on our part. In order to be his disciple, we must first confront the. Confront the truth about who he is. The second requirement of discipleship is that you confront the obstacles that stand between you and God. And that's what he did. His riches were the obstacle. And so when Jesus said, hey, you know what? You need to get rid of this. Because it's standing in the way. Nothing to do with the riches. It's not saying riches are bad or riches are good. But anything that stands between you and God is not a good thing. Maybe power. Success, selfishness, football, your car, who knows? The requirement of this stems from God's love for us, first of all. In Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the same story in, in chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus it says this, Jesus looking at him loved him and said to this rich young ruler, you lack one thing. See, it was, Jesus loved this guy too much not to tell him the truth. He didn't want him just to be casually religious. That's not what Christianity is about. He loved him enough to expect the rich young ruler to be absolutely dedicated. And also the second thing this shows me is that it's non-negotiable. Because when the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, I didn't see Jesus chasing after him saying, Oh, wait a minute, wait, we can work something out. Don't worry, you know, come on back. We'll, We'll talk about this. Don't leave. You know, like a used car salesman does. Ever been to buy a car? It's nightmare. I remember I bought that Hyundai, my, my only new car I ever bought, besides the Impala I have now. My first car I bought, 1989 Hyundai, and my, my 1977, I think it was, uh, Buick Regal, died. And I had to have a car. And I went over to the Hyundai dealer after church on Sunday, and I said, I need the car. I need a car now. What do I qualify for? He, Gave me an amount. I said, all right, well, let's look at some cars. And I looked at one of the showroom. I said, I want this car. He said, don't you want to drive it? I said, no, it's fine. Let's just do this thing. It's a stupid way to buy a car, okay? This is not the way to do it. I mean, this guy was taken back. Well, I got to go talk to the manager. I go, what do you got to talk to the manager for? I Pay the price. Let's go. I got to go. I got to service at 6 o'clock. Don't have time to mess around here. And I remember, this guy was just beside himself, and finally, you know, it still took an hour and a half, two hours to do this thing. You don't want to, I don't want to drive it, it's fine, it's fine. And uh, I remember, I had borrowed, I think, my landlord's car, or Ampika's car, or somebody's car, and I said, okay, I got to get going, and uh, here's the address, drop the car off at the house. You don't even want to drive the car, I said, no, I don't have time, and I just took off. Sure enough, I got home that night, and Went to church that evening and said, hey, I bought a car. Where is it at? Well, it's at the house, hopefully, you know. It was non, I didn't want to negotiate. I didn't have time. This is the way Jesus was. He, he didn't negotiate with this guy. He didn't sit there and say, okay, well, wait, maybe we can work something out. He said, no. You know what? This is the deal, and that's it, period. It's non-negotiable. You can't negotiate your salvation with a holy God. Whatever stands between you and the abs- your absolute commitment to Christ must be eliminated. God will not lower his standards. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, great man of God, was once asked the secret of his dynamic Christian life. And his re- response was this, I told the Lord that he could have all that there is of William Booth. That's what Christ requires. All. The last thing before our communion time, not only confront the truth about Jesus Christ, not only confront the obstacles that stand between you and God, but also confront your absolute need for God's grace. See, that's what he says in verse 23. Tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's saying, you know what? It's impossible. It's impossible without the grace of God. That's why we don't have a bunch of steps that you have to go through to be saved. Doesn't exist. God has to work in your heart. God has to call you. God has to save you. Because with man, it's impossible. It's not about praying a prayer. It's not about signing a card. It's not about raising your hand or walking down an aisle. It's about basically committing yourself to Christ. Cute little story about a man who died and went to heaven when he got to the pearly gates. St. Peter, (laughs) told him his life would be reviewed and his good deeds would be added up. And he had to earn 1,000 points to get into heaven. And the man said, oh, that's going to be easy. And you think so? Yeah, I think so. I taught Sunday school for every every Sunday for 40 years, junior high. Peter said, all right, that's worth one point. And kind of stepped back. little surprised. He said, well, I was a faithful and loving husband, as well as a dedicated and nurturing father. Peter looked at him, said, that's one more point. Got two. Man was becoming increasingly concerned. He said, well, I, I tithe on my income. Peter said, all right, that's one point. Now, the man was a little worried. He said, you know what? I'm a deacon at the church, a faithful deacon. I've even served on the church board. Peter looked at him. Winked his eye and said, that'll get you a half point. (laughs) The man had gone through his entire list of every good thing he had ever done, and he came up with 12 points. That was it. Finally, in exasperation, he looked at St. Peter and he said, you know what, I give up. The only way a guy could get in here is by the grace of God. Peter turned to him and said, you know what, that's worth a thousand points, my friend. Welcome in. See, we can't allow ourselves to believe for one moment that we're worthy of the goodness and mercy that God has bestowed on us. We sang that song earlier, our hope is built on nothing less, nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The requirements for discipleship are tough, beloved. In fact, you could honestly say they're more than you can possibly pay. And without the grace of God giving you strength day by day, you're never going to make it. Remember this little song by Bill Gaither. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful of my life. Our lives are nothing more to God than brokenness and strife. But it's wonderful that God's grace has the ability to take our weakness, to take our pride, to take our sin. And when we bring it to the cross, when we bring it to the Savior, he's able to develop us into strong followers of Christ, strong disciples. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this illustration of this young ruler who thought that, He had done everything to earn his salvation. And yet, in the end, it says that he went away sorrowful. Lord, the cost of discipleship is great. Bottom line, we have to do things your way. We have to understand that you set the standard, not us. You set the pace, not us. You make the rules, not us. We must be willing to do things God's way means trusting Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, being willing to admit the obstacles that stand between you and him, trusting completely and solely in his grace, in his grace alone to save you. You will then understand what it means to have eternal life. Father, I pray for each individual in this room as we prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, that you would move and work Lord, if there's those here who yet to put that faith, take that step of faith. It is that. It is yielding our control to you, Lord. And that's a hard thing to do for, for anyone. But Lord, I pray that you would give them.